Well, tonight I want to look at a passage with you that uh, we've probably looked at uh, many times before. I've probably quoted this passage or cross-referenced this passage um, as much as any other passage over the last 15 years that our church has been in existence, but I've never actually exposited this passage. I've never actually preached this passage. And the passage I'm talking about is Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8, a passage that's very familiar to all of us. Um, Some of us may even have this memorized, but it's one of the classic texts about Jesus Christ anywhere in in the Bible. And it seems like uh, it, it, it just serves as a, a wonderful uh, reference, um, no matter where you're studying in God's Word, it seems like almost all roads lead back to Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 8. Let me remind you of what it says, Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul writes, "...have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus." who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. Being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Father, again, we're treading on holy ground this evening. There's great mystery here in these verses that we humbly acknowledge that we will never fully comprehend uh, this side of heaven. But I pray you'd help us to grasp just a little more insight by the illumination of the Spirit tonight, that it might thrill our hearts and our souls as we contemplate the condescension of Christ. We pray this in His name. Amen. Selfishness and pride are the twisted, perverted, and rebellious roots from which all other sins grow. In fact, the original sin was rooted in selfishness and pride. And I'm not talking about the original sin on earth. I'm talking about the original sin in heaven, if you can believe it. In eternity past, God created a host of angels to worship and to serve Him, and Scripture indicates that the most beautiful angel was named Lucifer, and God had specifically created Lucifer for the purpose of leading His fellow angels in worship. However, that exalted position that God gave Lucifer wasn't good enough for him. He wanted to be worshipped himself, just like God. And so consequently, God banished him from heaven for trying to steal his glory along with a third of the the other angels who followed Lucifer in his rebellion. And God created a place called hell to serve as their eternal dwelling place. We know Lucifer and these angels as the devil and his demons. Turn back to the Old Testament, to Isaiah chapter 14, where we find an interesting parallel to Satan. In Isaiah chapter 14, we see Israel taunting, or the God of Israel taunting the king of Babylon, but uh, many Bible scholars see in this taunt of the king of Babylon Uh, the Lord taunting Satan, who fell from heaven. Listen to Isaiah 14, verse 12. How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, son of the dawn. By the way, if you have a King James Version or a New King James Version, you see the name Lucifer, how you have fallen from heaven, Lucifer, son of the dawn. That's how uh, the, the Latin Vulgate translated, O star of the morning, with the word, the Latin word, Lucifer. You have been cut down to earth, you have weakened the nations, but you said in your heart, and notice the five I wills of Satan, I will ascend to heaven, I will raise my throne above the stars of God, I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds, I will make myself like the most high. 
Nevertheless, you will be thrust down to Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. And then turn over to Ezekiel chapter 28, another reference to Satan, a veiled reference. Again, here in Ezekiel chapter 28, we see God prophesying about the fall of the king of Tyre. And yet again, Bible scholars have linked this to uh, really a, a type of, 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 of Satan, if you will. Ezekiel chapter 28, verse 11, again, the word of the Lord came to me saying, son of man, take up lamentation over the king of Tyre and say to him, thus says the Lord God, and tell me if this does not sound like a description of what happened in eternity past in heaven. You had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. You were in Eden, the garden of God. Every precious stone was your covering, the ruby, the topaz, then the diamond, the beryl, the onyx, the, the jasper, the lapis lazuli, the turqu- turqu- turquoise, and the emerald and the gold, the workmanship of your settings and sockets was in you. On the day that you were created, they were prepared. You were the anointed cherub who covers, and I placed you there. You were on the holy mountain of God. You walked in the midst of the stones of fire. You were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. By the abundance of your trade, you were internally filled with violence and you sinned. Therefore, I cast you as profane from the mountain of God. And I have destroyed you, O covering cherub, from the midst of the stones of fire. Why? Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. I cast you to the ground. I put you before kings that they may see you. Verse 19, all who know you among the peoples are appalled at you. You have become terrified. You will cease to be forever. Again, some interesting descriptions of the original sin of Satan. Now, after Satan, as you know, was hurled out of heaven, he was hurled to the earth, and he showed up where? In the Garden of Eden, in the form of a serpent, and he tempted Eve to do the very same thing that he had done to try to steal God's glory by becoming like God. Remember what he said to Eve? When he said, you surely will not die, but you will become like God. And so when Adam and Eve followed Satan in rebellion against God, they plunged the entire human race into sin and death, and God banished them from the garden. And from that point on, the rest of the Bible is all about what God did to rescue mankind from their self-inflicted sinful state and bring them back into a right relationship with himself so they wouldn't have to spend eternity in hell with the devil and his demons. And the profound irony of God's plan of salvation, it's really the paradox of salvation, is it required him to perform a sacrificial, selfless, humble act that was the exact opposite of Satan's initial, selfish, prideful act. Satan led mankind into sin by exalting himself and attempting to become like God, and he was forced out of heaven as a result. And God himself voluntarily left the glories of heaven and came to to mankind to lead them out of sin by becoming like man and dying on a cross to pay the penalty for our rebellion against him. And Jesus Christ's death on the cross is the greatest example of humble, selfless, sacrificial service of others. And the key to being a humble servant like Jesus Christ is living in the shadow of the cross. Martin Lloyd-Jones said it this way, there's only one thing I know of that crushes me to the ground and humiliates me to the dust, and that is to look at the Son of God and especially to contemplate the cross. We just sung that great hymn to start off our service tonight from Isaac Watts, when I survey the wondrous cross. And the first verse says this, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. 
And so whenever selfishness or, or pride rears their ugly heads in your life, in my life, it's evidence that we've lost sight of the cross. And that was Paul's whole point for including these magnificent verses that I just read in his letter to the church in Philippi. Apparently, selfishness and pride was disrupting relationships within the church and and threatening the unity of the church. We, We know that from verses like Philippians 1 verse 27, where he says, only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. He goes on in chapter 2, verse 1, Therefore, if there's any encouragement in Christ, if there's any consolation of love, if there's any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and compassion, make my joy complete by being of the same mind, maintaining the same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose. And then he says this in verse 3, Do nothing from what? selfishness or empty conceit or pride, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interest of others. We also know that in chapter 4, he directly confronts two women in the church who were not in harmony with one another. He says in chapter 4, verse 2, I urge Yodi and I urge Sintiki to live in harmony in the Lord. Indeed, true companion, I ask you also to help these women who have shared my struggle in the cause of the gospel together with Clement also and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. They were just one example of some of the rifts that have been developing in that church. And so Paul is addressing this issue of disunity and he he exposes the secret or he reveals the secret to unity and that is what? Humility. Max Anders, one of my favorite authors, said this about humility. He said, humility is essential to successful relationships. It is the oil that makes the intersecting gears of human personalities turn without grinding on each other. There's a lot of different personalities in this church, aren't there? A lot of different personalities in your home, in your family, at work, at school, in your neighborhood. How in the world are we all to get along without grinding on one another? Well, the key is humility. It acts like the oil that makes it all work. And so in order to press home his His exhortation here in in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 2, to do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, regard one another as more important than yourselves. Do not merely look out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others. That's the secret right there. It's humility. Paul goes on to provide them with an unforgettable incentive and illustration of humble selfless service. What does that look like? What does it look like to not do anything from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind regarding another person is more important than yourself and not merely looking out for your own personal interests, but also for the interests of others? What does that look like, Paul? And he says, I'll, I'll tell you what it looks like. It looks like the condescension of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what it looks like. And so here we have in verses 5 through 8 what you could call a Christological gem. Christology is the the theology of Christ, the the doctrine of Christ. So here we have a Christological gem which just sparkles forth from this book. And it, it really succinctly summarizes how the second person of the Trinity willingly came from the heights of heaven where he was adored and served by angels to the depths of the earth where he was despised and rejected by the very ones that he came to rescue. But as we look at these verses, I want to make sure we don't forget that Paul did not include this section, these verses, in his letter to the Philippian believers to simply instruct them in theology, but to practically help them get along. Someone has wisely written here, Paul 
never teaches doctrine for, his, for its own sake. His highest theological flights are always related to the down-to-earth problems of Christian living. And so, this passage, verses 5 through 8, is, 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 is almost a, an, an incidental illustration of, of a command that Paul gave in verses 3 and 4. And so really, it's, it, it, it was just, oh, oh, by the way, let me illustrate for you what I'm trying to teach you. And yet, we, we're given a rich theology of Jesus Christ here. And what I want you to see here tonight in verses 5 through 8 is how Paul explained the four sacrificial steps of self-degradation that led Jesus from the throne in heaven to a cross on earth in order to save us from our sin and to serve as a model for us to follow. Let me say that again because that's really our main point tonight. We're going to see the four sacrificial steps of self-degradation that led Jesus from a throne in heaven to a cross on earth in order to save you from your sin and to serve as a model for you to follow in relating to people in your home and relating to people at work and relating to people in this church. How's that? Notice verse 5, have this attitude in yourselves which was also in Christ Jesus. We need to have the same mindset as the head of the body of which we're all members. How inconsistent would it be to have a humble, selfless leader and all of the people who are connected to him are selfish and prideful? That makes no sense. We need to share the heart of our leader. That's what Paul was getting across here. We need to have the same attitude that Jesus had. And so what does that attitude look like? Well, again, let's see these four sacrificial steps of self-degradation. Number one, step one, we could call renunciation. Renunciation. Notice verse six. Who, he's describing this attitude that we should have in Christ, uh, who, although he existed in the form of God, did not grasp equality with God, a thing to be grasped. So Paul says, who although he existed in the form of God, this is a reference to Jesus' pre-existent state as a second person of the Trinity in eternity past. And the word form there in the original Greek means an outward manifestation of an inward reality. In other words, Jesus didn't merely resemble God, he was actually God. The creator, the controller, the sustainer of all things. Jesus has, has, has always been and will always be completely coexistent, co-eternal, and co-equal the Father. And in our study of the Gospel of John, we've been learning this over and over and over again. As Jesus referenced over and over again his deity... In John chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. In chapter 5, verse 18, it says that the Jews wanted to kill Jesus, Not just because he was breaking the Sabbath, but he was calling God his own father, which in their minds, he was claiming to be what? Equal with God. In fact, he actually said, John 10, in John 10, verse 30, he said, I and the Father are one. We just learned this last week in John 17, the high priestly prayer Verse 5, Jesus prayed, Now, Father, glorify me together with you, with yourself, with the glory which I had with you before the world was. And then, of course, we have other references in, in the New Testament about the deity of Christ. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Colossians 2, 9, it says, For in Him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. I love Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3. Hebrews 1, verse 3 says this, 
and He is the radiance of His glory and the exact representation of His nature. And so back to Philippians chapter 2, that while Jesus was and is God, very God, it says He did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped. If you have an NIV, it says something very interesting. It says it, He didn't consider it robbery to be equal with God. That was, it was not, he, was, he wasn't taking something that didn't belong to Him. Satan was trying to take something that didn't belong to him. So even though Jesus had always been God, he did not cling to or hold on to his position or insist on his rights and privileges. He could have refused to to leave the glory and majesty that he enjoyed in heaven, but instead he willingly renounced his rights and privileges as God. This is our point, renunciation. This was the first step. He renounced willingly his rights and privileges as God. Stated another way, he temporarily relinquished or laid aside his position in heaven, but it didn't affect his person. This is, this is positionally here. We're talking a position here, not his person. His person has always remained the same. And so while Jesus was here on earth, he, he, he never insisted or demanded to be treated with the honor and the glory that were rightfully his. While Jesus was here on earth, he never used his divine powers or prerogatives for his own personal advantage. We know that he could have turned stones into bread and, and jumped off the temple without getting hurt when he was tempted by Satan, but he didn't. He could have called legions of angels to rescue him from being arrested and and killed, but he didn't. While Jesus was here on earth, he gave up the independent use and display of his divine power and glory. That's important that we understand. That's really a classic evangelical description of what what Paul is describing here, that, that he did not give up his deity, he did not give up his attributes, his godness, if you will, he simply gave up the independent use and display of his divine power and glory. In other words, he limited how and when he visibly manifested his splendor and majesty according to the will of the Father. In other words, he didn't do it unless the Father wanted him to. And again, the Gospel of John has been very helpful uh, in understanding this John chapter 5, verse 30, and I can do nothing on my own initiative as I hear, I judge and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me. John chapter 6, verse 38, he said the same thing, for I've come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And of course, we all know this. The, the account of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was wrestling with God in prayer uh, before he was to be crucified, and he said, not my, what, will be done, but yours. And so there was a renunciation. That was the very first step that he took was he renounced and relinquished his position, his prerogatives, his his rights, his privileges as God. The second step we could call subjection. Subjection. Notice he goes on, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant. He emptied himself. And that really is the, 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 probably the most difficult phrase to, to translate or to, I should say, interpret uh, out of this whole passage. And, and we need to be very careful when interpreting this phrase that we don't ever make it mean that Jesus was not fully God. This is where we get the term, the kenosis. That word empty is kenosin in the Greek. And so you, you hear about the kenosis a theory or the theories of the kenosis, and, and so this is the kenosis passage, this, this emptying of himself. But again, we need to be careful to, under, to clearly understand and articulate that Jesus never stopped being God. 
when he became a man. It's, it's impossible for God not to be God. It was impossible for Jesus to give up his deity. And so any explanation of this phrase that, that diminishes Jesus' deity is heretical. Don't believe it. Someone coined this, the, the false view of the kenosis, incarnation by divine suicide. In other words, God had to kill himself, if you will. He can no longer be God in order to become man. That, that's not at all what Paul was saying here. And we're going to see as we go on that, that Paul did everything he possibly could to guard and exalt the deity of Jesus Christ, to not take anything away from the Godhead of Christ. And again, Jesus emptied himself of his divine rights, his privileges, but not his divine attributes. Not for one moment during his life on earth did Jesus ever not possess all the attributes of God. Now, he subjected himself to human limitations, but he remained omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. We know that from the miracles that he performed demonstrated his omnipotence. He read people's minds. He, he knew what they were thinking. That demonstrated his omniscience. And, and uh, there were times when he left somewhere and then just showed up somewhere. And you're like, well, how did you get there so fast? Walking on water, things like that. So his glory and his majesty were, were, were all still there. It was just hidden or veiled by human flesh. Probably the best example of that is the transfiguration. When he took, uh, Jesus took Peter, James, and John up on the mountain and did his Superman impersonation, right? Kind of pulled back, you know, his flesh, if you will, not literally, but, but showed his glory. And they saw him in his glory and his majesty. And Peter's like, hey, this is a good day. Let's, let's uh, camp out up here for a while and enjoy this. They, they saw the glory of Christ. And again, we need to be extremely careful in how we explain this phrase, emptied himself. But I think the, the following four phrases in verses 7 and 8 give the best explanation of what emptied himself means. Notice what he says. First of all, he emptied himself. What does that look like? Well, let me explain to you. Let me describe that to you. He took the form of a bondservant. Note that word take or taking, taking the form of a bondservant. That's, he was taking on something. He wasn't giving up something. You see that? Very, very important concept here. He, he didn't give up anything. He took on something. And so the, the kenosis, if you will, is better understood as addition rather than subtraction. Jesus never surrendered or gave up his deity. He took on an additional nature, if you will. So, so again, it's addition, not subtraction. And notice it says that he, 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 it says he took or he, he took on the form of a bondservant. He came to earth not as a, not as a king, not as a, a philosopher, a wise man, a wealthy businessman. No, he came to earth as a slave whose main task was to serve others. In Matthew chapter 22, verse 27, Jesus said this to his disciples. Got the wrong verse here. Well, we know what he said in, in, in Mark chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give himself a ransom for many. In Matthew, Jesus said, he said, I, I, I'm among you as one who serves. I'm not here to be served. I'm, I'm here to serve. And probably the best example of that Second only to the cross is when he washed the disciples' feet in John chapter 13. We recently studied that passage and what a, what a, a humble, selfless act that he was the last person in that upper room that should have been washing anybody's feet. 
They should have all been fighting for that bowl and that, that basin and that towel to wash his feet, and yet he humbled himself and washed their feet. A perfect example of, of a servant. And just like a slave in those days, Jesus didn't own anything. He was owned by his master, the Father. He didn't own a home. He didn't own a business. He didn't own a boat. He didn't own a horse. He didn't own anything. He had to borrow a donkey to ride into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday. He, he had to borrow a room to celebrate the Last Supper. And he even was buried in a borrowed tomb. Why? All because he was willing to subject himself to life on earth as a slave, as a slave. And so step one is renunciation, step two is subjection, and step three is incarnation, incarnation. Notice what it says again in verse 7, but he emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in the likeness of men. I think this is interesting, the wording that Paul uses here, made in the likeness of men, because Genesis 1 says that God made us in his likeness. And then he made himself like us. He became one of us. That's why the angel told told Joseph that the the child's name that Mary would, would give birth to, his name would be Emmanuel, which means what? God with us. And so he was born just like us. He grew up in a family just like us. He had a mom and dad and brothers and sisters just like us. He learned to trade like we do. He was hungry like us. He was thirsty like us. He got tired like us. And he rejoiced at weddings like we do. And he cried at funerals like we do. The scriptures are clear regarding Christ's humanity. Luke chapter 2, verse 52, and Jesus kept increasing in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Just talking about him, him growing up. Galatians chapter 4, verse 4, but when the fullness of time came, God sent forth the Son born of a woman, born under the law. Colossians chapter 1, verse 22. Yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 17. Therefore he had to be made like his brethren in all things, so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. And then 1 John 4, 2. Hopefully you don't uh, have a problem with the incarnation, because if you do, you're not a believer you're not truly saved, according to 1 John 4, 2. By this we, you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. The incarnation is an essential to salvation. The point is simply this. When, it, when Paul says that, that, he, that he was made in the likeness of men, if you pass by Jesus walking down the street in Jerusalem, there was nothing unique would have stood out about him. He wouldn't be like, whoa, look at that alien. Wow, he's really, he really looks different from the rest of us. You just walk right past him. He looked like every other face in the crowd. He didn't walk around with a perpetual halo over his head like he's so often portrayed in sacred paintings. Like, what's that round thing over that guy's head? No, that's not what happened. Jesus was, was a real, live human being. And while he was truly a man, he was not merely a man. He was truly a man, but he was not merely a man. And he was a real human being with one exception. What was that exception? He was without sin. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, He made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. Hebrews chapter 4, 
Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. And then 1 John chapter 3, verse 5. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. If there was anything that might have caught your attention about Jesus, if you knew him, was, you know, I noticed that guy never swears. He, he, never, uh, he never does anything. He's never mean. He's never sinfully angry. Um, all the things that you see everybody else doing and struggling with, he, he was perfect. And yet he took on all the frailties and, and problems that come with living in a sin-cursed body and a sin-cursed world. And while he never sinned, he was made sin for us. I love what Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 3, For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did, sending his own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, that is an offering for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh. So while he was encased in sinful flesh, if you will, he remained sinless. Back to Philippians 2, notice he goes on, not only was he made in the likeness of men, Paul expands on this again, he's talking about what does emptied himself mean? He was found in appearance as a man. He was found in appearance as a man. In other words, he looked human. He looked human, but he was more than human. And while he appeared outwardly to be no different than than any other person, he had a divine nature encased in human flesh. He, He wasn't half man and half God. He was fully man and fully God. And he had to be fully God in order to conquer sin by his death and resurrection. At the same time, he had to be fully man for his death to serve as a substitute for man's sin, to pay man's penalty. You've got to be a man if you're going to die in the place of men. Perhaps a, a helpful illustration is that famous Mark Twain story, The Prince and the Pauper. You, you probably have read that or seen some adapt, ad, ad, adaptation of that in a movie where the prince who lived up on, in the castle on the hill disguised his appearance and went down to live amongst the commoners, among the paupers. And he was mistaken for a pauper. But even though he looked like a pauper, he was still the prince. And I think that's some of what Paul had in mind when he said in 2 Corinthians 8 9, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that through his poverty you might become rich. Let's swap places. The prince of the pauper. I'll come down and live where you live so you can go and live where I live. The incarnation. Well, we have one more step here. Step number four is crucifixion. Crucifixion. Notice, again, describing what it means that he emptied himself, that he took the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. The fact that Jesus became obedient to death, it says, means that he had a choice in the matter. None of us can say that. Well, I just became obedient to death. I just, you know, I, I just obeyed the fact that I needed to die. That doesn't happen. None of us have that choice. Since Jesus never sinned, he would have never died. But he chose to die in obedience to the Father's will. Hebrews chapter 5 wrestles with this mystery 
of how does God learn to obey. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7, in the days of his flesh, talking about Christ, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. I think that's a reference to the, the Garden of Gethsemane when he was wrestling with God and begging God if there was any other way. Verse 8, although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered, and having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey him the source of eternal salvation. Again, he ultimately, at the end of the day, obeyed. He didn't want to die on the cross. That was the wrestling match in the Garden of Gethsemane between Christ's humanity and his deity In his humanity, who would want to be crucified? No one. But then he ultimately submitted and obeyed. Not my will, but yours be done. And so the death that Jesus was willing to die for us was no ordinary death. He wasn't allowed to die a natural death or even an accidental death. He suffered a violent, wrongful execution. He could have been beheaded, he could have been stoned or hanged, but instead he was executed in the worst way imaginable. And I think that's Paul's point here. It's almost as if he writes this last phrase with a, with, with, with a sense of shock in his voice. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Can you believe that? We know that crucifixion is perhaps the cruelest, most excruciatingly painful and shameful form of execution that has ever been uh, used in the history of the world. It was originally devised by the ancient Persians and, and Phoenicians and was later perfected by the Romans as a form of capital punishment for slaves and, and foreigners. In fact, I think it's interesting to note here that Roman citizens were exempt from crucifixion. You couldn't crucify a Roman citizen. Because it was considered so disgraceful, so horrific, so despicable. In fact, the Jews considered that anyone who was ever crucified to be under the curse of God. That they were being, it was a sign that they were being excommunicated from God's covenant people. That's what Paul said in Galatians chapter 3, verse 13. He quotes Deuteronomy 21. When he says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us, for it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. The worst part of dying on the cross for for, for Jesus was not the physical pain and the agony, while that must have been uh, excruciating, but, but it was the spiritual pain and agony they endured by becoming a curse for us. And bearing his father's wrath for our sin. I thought it was interesting. One commentator delved into this this phrase a bit. Even death on a cross. Why was Paul so surprised? Why was he so shocked? Why did he emphasize the the, the crucifixion? A, A crucifixion? And this is what this commentator wrote. He said, what bothered Paul the most before he was converted was the cross. To him, the cross was the most impossible thing about Christianity. Why was he going around and saying Christianity is wrong? Let's round up all these Christians and kill them. Why was he saying that? He says it seemed outrageous to Paul that the one who claimed to be God manifest in the flesh should die on a cross. The manner of Christ's death is what rendered his claim impossible in Paul's mind. The idea that the man who claimed to be Israel's Messiah should die an accursed death was not just outrageous, it was blasphemous. How can you say you're the Messiah, that you come from God, and then you're, you're the cursed one who hangs on a tree? It's impossible. But after his conversion, what seemed 
the most impossible thing about Christianity became the most impressive thing about Christianity, the cross. And after Paul had a face-to-face encounter with the risen Lord Jesus Christ, the cross no longer was something that he tripped over, but it was something that he boasted in. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. It was foolishness to him before he came to Christ. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. But we preach Christ crucified. To Jews a stumbling block and to Gentiles foolishness. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. It became the consuming passion of Paul's ministry. Was the crucifixion, the, the cross. Galatians 6.14, Paul said, But may it never be that I would boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. I find it ironic that Paul would boast in the one thing that humiliates us more than anything else. John Stott said it this way. He said, every time we look at the cross of Christ, it seems to be saying to us, I'm here because of you. It is your sin that I'm bearing, your curse I'm suffering, your debt I'm paying, your death I am dying. He concludes, he says, nothing in history or in the universe cuts us down to size like the cross. Nothing. Cuts us down to size, like the cross. And yet we too can boast in the fact that Jesus Christ would stoop so low to save a wretched, hell-deserving sinner like us. And we know how the rest of this passage goes. Because Christ humbled himself to the lowest place, God exalted him to the highest place because he was willing to exchange the praise and glory of heaven for the pain and the grief of earth. God raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand. Notice verse 9, for this reason also God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and that every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And here we have the ultimate illustration in Scripture of the principle that we see all throughout the Bible that everyone who exalts himself will be what? Humbled. But he who humbles himself will be what? Exalted. Satan exalted himself by trying to grasp equality with God and as a result he was excommunicated from heaven. Jesus, the Son of God, humbled himself by not regarding equality with God a thing to be grasped, and as a result, he was exalted in heaven. And someday, everyone will acknowledge him as Lord. My question tonight is, have you bowed your knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you confessed Him as your Lord? Paul said in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, that if we confess with our mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in our heart that God raised Him from the dead, we shall be saved. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for this truly magnificent passage that has just given us an opportunity to just sit humbly at the foot of the cross tonight. We're humbled by Christ's humility and what he was willing to do for us, how he was willing to uh, condescend for us so that we could have our sins forgiven through his blood on the cross so that ultimately one day we would be exalted along with him at his right hand. What a glorious truth that we've had the privilege of looking at tonight. I pray, Lord, as we 
now take communion together, that our hearts and our minds will be filled with wonder and awe and love and praise and a desire to be obedient to the one who was obedient to death for us. We pray this in his name. Amen. I want to invite the gentlemen who are going to serve us tonight to come forward. And uh, this is um, a good time to remind us all that that, uh, Jesus did not ordain communion for his church. He didn't command us to do this together in order to be saved, but to simply celebrate our salvation. And so if you have not yet come to Christ tonight, uh, we don't want you to think that by taking communion that somehow this is going to save you because it has nothing to do with saving you. Um, If you're not a Christian, we would just ask that you would let these plates pass you by. Don't be embarrassed by that or ashamed of that. But we would ask you to really examine your heart tonight and ask yourself, why have I not? bowed my knee to the Lord Jesus Christ. Why well, I have not confessed Him as my Lord. I'm a wretched, hell-deserving sinner. I'm selfish. I'm prideful. That's why Jesus had to come and die for my selfishness and pride. And you can take this time just to talk with the Lord and pray to the Lord and confess your sin and repent of your sin and trust Jesus as your Lord and Savior. Tonight could be the night of your salvation without even taking communion, just watching us take communion. If you are a Christian, again, this is a a very serious time where we need to examine our lives to make sure that we're right with the Lord, we're right with our brothers and sisters in Christ, whether they be in our own home or within the household of God here. And so please uh, take some time to to confess sin, to make sure uh, there's no known sin in your life that you're holding on to. You're not, un- not willing to give up to the Lord. And uh, let's just rejoice and celebrate in our hearts as we remember the sacrifice that Christ made for us so that we could be here tonight.